Hey there. A reminder, if you haven't yet, to try listening to the show on the NPR One app. NPR One finds the best stories and podcasts from public radio and beyond. Then it figures out what you like to give you more. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here to round up some of the week's political news. We're talking about that big Republican retreat in Philadelphia this week, Donald Trump's first press conference as president, and we're going to reality check all of those executive actions that Trump's been signing all week. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. And I'm Susan Davis, and I also cover Congress. All right, and we have a lot of new people checking out the show lately, so let's say hi to our new listeners. Welcome. Hello. How's it going? Bonjour. Guten Tag. Hola. Thanks for uh, thanks for checking out the show. Tam and I take turns handling the hosting duties here. We do at least a couple episodes a week. The one you're listening to right now is our weekly roundup. That's usually out on Thursdays or Fridays. And we'll do shorter topical episodes earlier in the week, too, and anytime there's a big news story. So thanks for listening. And let's dig into this week. Uh, let's start with the big news from the day. The first foreign leader to visit the Trump White House Prime Minister Theresa May of the United Kingdom. Well, the U.S. and the U.K. have a close relationship. Politicians from both countries fall over themselves, calling it a special relationship. So when there's a new president in office, the prime minister is usually one of the first people to drop by. So this afternoon, President Trump and Prime Minister May held a joint press conference. Trump offered some very scripted remarks up top. He and Theresa May checked that box and both emphasized the importance of that Special relationship between the two countries. And we did hear Theresa May make an interesting statement about NATO. Let's take a listen to that. On defense and security cooperation, we're united in our recognition of NATO as the bulwark of our collective defense. And today we've reaffirmed our unshakable commitment to this alliance. Mr. President, I think you said you confirmed that you're 100 percent behind NATO. But we're also discussing the importance of NATO continuing to ensure it is as equipped to fight terrorism and cyber warfare as it is to fight more conventional forms of war. That comes in contrast to when uh, candidate Trump went to Mexico, stood with uh, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto, and didn't talk about paying for the wall. And then afterwards, the Mexican president tweeted, I told him I wouldn't pay for the wall. This time she's like publicly saying, this is what we said behind closed doors. But why it's so interesting is because just, I mean, in case folks haven't been keeping up on this, Trump has been highly critical of NATO. He's called it obsolete. And questioning its value, which which I think of all the things he's done, that freaks out the rest of the world the most because people in Europe view NATO as this ironclad, important alliance that is one of the most important things in the world, especially at a time when Russia is looking pretty aggressive. They want to make sure that's a firm commitment. But it's her saying like, hey, behind closed doors, actually, we're totally on the same page or theoretically. So we heard. So there was that. And Trump was also asked about the U.S. sanctions on Russia. He said it was very early to be talking about lifting those. Uh, There was another interesting moment, too, when a reporter from our uh, public broadcasting cousins, the BBC, stood up and asked a pretty good question. Mr. President, you've said before that torture works. You've praised Russia. You've said you want to ban some Muslims from coming to America. You've suggested there should be punishment for abortion. For many people in Britain... Those sound like alarming beliefs. What do you say to our viewers at home who are worried about some of your views and worried about you becoming the leader of the free world? This was your choice of a question. (laughs) There goes that relationship. 
Was that a good question or a bold question? Can it be both? <laughs> what but the way answer, he responded though? was it was so off base. He started talking about torture and his relationship with Putin. But what he said about torture was striking. Now, Donald Trump has at various times said that he believes that we should bring back waterboarding, that torture works. His defense secretary, James Mattis, uh, former General James Mattis, does not. And and Trump said that he's given Mattis the final call on torture. Mm-hmm. He's highly respected. He's the general's general. Uh, got through the Senate very, very quickly, which in this country is not easy, I will tell you. And uh, so I'm going to rely on him. I happen to feel that it does work. I've been open about that for a long period of time. Uh, but I am going with our leaders. That is remarkable and, uh, that the commander-in-chief uh, says he's going to defer to someone else. Well, there's been so many different issues where Trump says A, and then uh, and their confirmation hearings, his uh, cabinet picks have said B, and things that really contradict each other. So I wonder if that'll be a consistent thing. Some other folks have been saying this as well. I interviewed former Defense Secretary Bob Gates earlier this week, and he specifically pointed out that he was very reassured by Donald Trump's willingness to listen to other national security experts on mm-hmm. issues and pointed to this as being a a sign that Donald Trump seems to be willing to heed advice on topics that he's not familiar with. And this is particularly interesting because Bob Gates and Donald Trump did not necessarily have a smooth relationship during the campaign season. We should also say that torture is illegal and that the president can't single-handedly bring back torture and that congressional leaders uh, and members of the Intelligence Committee and the Armed Services Committee are in near unanimous agreement that torture is illegal and that it is not coming back. So it is more of, uh, I mean, it is a debate that Trump obviously throughout the campaign had this position, but the reality is that it is illegal, that it would take a change of law or, or he would be in violation of the law if he were to order torture to happen. And uh, so Theresa May came to the White House. They met in the Oval Office before this press conference. Uh, Earlier in the week, she came to Philadelphia and she talked to Republicans in Congress who were on their retreat in Philadelphia. But so it was really interesting to me how it seemed like Theresa May came with the goal of asserting herself as a partner with Donald Trump on the world stage, saying that they shared big visions that both countries are kind of at a turning point that she thinks that, you know, uh, she came into power after Brexit. Donald Trump, of course, has had his own nationalist movement, and she seems a lot of similarity between the two of them. Yeah, her visit was remarkable, too, because every year both parties take these sort of policy retreats where they regroup and strategize for the year ahead, but never before has a foreign leader spoken at one of these. But it's interesting that she received this invitation and made a decision to meet exclusively with one party. That is making a statement, I think, unto itself. She addressed House and Senate Republicans gathered there. And uh, I was not in the room for Trump's speech, but I watched it on television and I was in the room for Theresa May's speech. And and I talked to members in the room and staff that was in the room, and she was overwhelmingly positively received in that room. She gave a really dynamic speech. She had Republicans up and standing ovations at several points in it. And it sounded like a speech Donald Trump could give if Donald Trump was a disciplined messenger <laughs> who gave more, who spoke in a more traditional way. It was funny to hear all the Republicans in Philadelphia talk over and over again. This is the city where the Declaration of Independence was signed <laughs> and then be like, and here's Welcome the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and so she was only talking to Republicans. I mean, this was a Republican yeah. retreat. So there was never a desire to, to sort of reach out and, and talk to the Democrats. Well, Congress is not in session. They weren't in session Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which is her visit here. 
year and Republicans extended an invitation and she accepted it. But she made a conscious decision to only meet with one party during her state visit in Washington. And considering that special relationship, I think that makes a statement. I think we have special relationship enough. <laughs> um, so so <laughs> Theresa May was there. Uh, that was not the only thing going on. Though, uh, going into this retreat, the big talk was like, we are going to figure out an Obamacare game plan. (laughs) Piece of cake, Did they? I mean, what came out of that on the the Obamacare front? So, oftentimes they use these annual retreats to sort of find the consensus, the game plan for the road ahead. And going into this, Obamacare and their plans to replace it were at the top of the list, as is their plans to change the tax code. And... What came clear out of this session is that they have a lot of ideas on both of these fronts, but very little, almost no consensus on the way to get it done. But they still want to do it on a pretty fast timetable. There are splintering there, and it's quiet splintering, but it's, you know, in some ways it's growing. There's competing plans on how you do Obamacare. There's people voicing regrets saying, not regrets, but concerns saying, look, depending on how fast and how hard we go about this, If we break it, we buy it. Mm -hmm. If it becomes Trump care and it doesn't work as good as we say it's going to work, all of those political implications could come back on us. My question is, when does it become Trump care? When do they break it? Because President Trump signed an executive directive right when he came into office that basically said, hey, departments, you don't have to enforce some of the rules of Obamacare. And now uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has pulled back on ads that were supposed to be running this weekend, which is the final weekend of Obamacare enrollment for the year, which in theory would have been a push to get people to sign up for plans. Especially younger people who are cheaper and help the overall pool. Right. So have they already done things that make it start to be Trump care and not Obamacare? Not yet. The first real test is going to be what they've already promised is that by late February, early March, we're going to see a bill that repeals Obamacare. And what they've talked about putting in there is repealing the individual mandate, essentially the tax structure that is Obamacare. And if they pass that and Donald Trump signs it, they own it. Now, there is a reason to be deeply skeptical that Republicans in a matter of weeks are going to be completely unified on this strategy and be able to pass it through Congress. But I would say House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in this session outlined a remarkably ambitious legislative year ahead that suggests that President Trump will be signing a bill by early April. They are making a point to blast the current system as much as they can, saying this is a failing system. This is already going under. Look at all the increased costs that we saw last fall. This thing is already in a death spiral, and we are saving the healthcare system by acting now. That is the message that you're hearing them. President Trump says it a lot. Mitch McConnell says it a lot. They're making a point to get that out there. That I think is their talking point. That is their talking point. Uh, but healthcare experts make it clear that... Obamacare is not in a death spiral at this point, although, you know, certainly there are people who have concerns about their health care in various ways. And oddly enough, public opinion polls have shown that as the repeal and replace conversation has gotten more active, uh, Obamacare has gotten more popular. Um, yeah. So that was health care. And even though it was not really a planned topic going into it, the, which wall. Is the wall, which is something I feel mm. like we're going to repeat a lot over the next few years. It became a big topic 
then who's going to pay for the wall is the question that Trump asked at every single rally. And the answer this week was the American uh, taxpayers. A lot of wall doings the last few days. We should start, Tamara, with what President Trump ordered and said earlier in the week. Yeah, I will start this and then I'm handing it off to Sue. (laughs) I'm ready. Okay, so what he did is he signed an executive order that, among other things, uh, says hey, guys, let's build the wall. Uh, There was a 2006 law that uh, was signed by President George W. Bush. It was a bipartisan measure that was designed to build a fence along the southern border. It was sort of a mix of fence building and using other technologies. But it said, we need to fortify our southern border. That's the authority that he is using to say, let's move forward. Let's get this thing going. In some ways, his his executive order was like a big public signature saying, I'm keeping this campaign promise. Yeah. And it was a kick in the pants to Congress to actually fund the thing that they approved 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, throughout the campaign, Donald Trump said Mexico was going to pay for it. Right. That was his part of his promise. We're going to build a wall and they're going to pay for or it. Or the crowd said Mexico would pay for it because he said, who is this common for refrain? Yeah. Like shouting. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I would argue that all along, people that understand how things get funded knew that the taxpayers were always going to pay for this thing because you can't make foreign countries. You can't just send them the bill in a very direct way. And what, you know, Paul Ryan alluded to this a couple of weeks ago when he did a town hall on CNN and he said on CNN, we're going to front the money for the wall. Mm-hmm. So we knew this was coming. Uh, but in response to Trump's actions, you know, lawmakers on the Hill are pretty much on board. I mean, which Republican in Congress right now wants to be the one that stands up to Donald Trump in the wall? But but Asma, you probably talked to more voters than any of us over the course <laughs> of the last year, just because of, of your focus. You spent a lot of time just like hanging out in different sure, communities. Yeah, yeah. And this seems like this was something that the wall issue, uh, Trump's immigration views as a whole, that all very different views and depending where you are. And people felt very strongly saying, you know, this is someone who's protecting the country or people saying this is this is a really manipulative, bad. True. That is exactly how voters felt. I I think the wall was one of these like push button polarizing issues. And that's exactly how we've seen, I think, the conversation spill out this week, both sort of in the real world and the social media world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of supporters who are saying this is exactly what he promised. Like, look, he's he's upholding his promise. Um, And and I will say there was a contingent of his voters, though, who also would tell me, you know, well, he doesn't really mean this or he's not exactly going to build the wall. So, I mean, that to me was always this interesting divide. There were supporters who who deeply believed he was going to build the wall and therefore were supporting him to do this. And then there were some uh, some of his supporters who didn't really take him literally. Um, and, and I don't know. I, I'd be curious to sort of revisit with you know some of those folks and hear what they think. But on the flip side, as you were saying, Scott, this was an issue that was so polarizing and I think really galvanized some Democrats. It, it sort of struck of being not really a national security issue, but in some ways... Fearful. Fearful, right. Right. I think for Democrats, it signified that there was this concern. Also, why are we building this wall only along our southern border? We also have a northern border. I mean, I think that there was a very sort of ethnic xenophobia that I think a lot of people saw on the Democratic side around that. And that is exactly sort of the splintering of conversation you're seeing now. And part of that conversation, too, at the time was people would always say, oh, Congress will never agree to pay for this. Congress would never agree to pay for that wall. And that's the difference an election makes that, you know, I think 
Trump supporters and members I talked to say this is Trump making good on what was a central campaign promise. And Congress just isn't in a position right now to deny him what he wants. And they're looking at passing this funding in the springtime. And it was like 15, yeah. Estimates that Congress is working off of is that the initial wall costs are in the 12 to 15 billion ballpark, but that doesn't include the security you need to man it or the maintenance cost to upkeep it. But wait, wait, wait. So they are going to appropriate 12 to 15 billion dollars to build a wall. This is the same Republican Congress that has been really upset about the deficit, very concerned about the deficit yeah. and debt that, you know, wanted to offset funding for Zika or for uh, the Flint, Michigan water system. Mm hmm. Yeah. So and what they're going to use is they're going to use a budget trick and they're going to use a special type of funding bill that doesn't need to be offset. And it's considered an emergency spending bill. And what emergency spending means in budget talks is that it's considered like a national priority. And so there's no budget rules that make Congress say you have to find spending cuts elsewhere in the budget. And their plan is to tack on that border fund. Now, what's not clear is if they're going to do the whole chunk of 12 to 15 billion right up front or if it's going to be a down payment. But Paul Ryan, the speaker, did commit yesterday to a 12 to $15 billion range. So this wall was just the latest example of Republicans wanting to talk about something and then spending a good chunk of their day answering questions about things that President Trump said or floated or did or a person that he insulted. Uh, so you and other reporters talked to John McCain. Well, yeah. It was like 40-minute conversation with, with John McCain. Yeah. You, wow. He said something that, that, that stuck out to you, right? So I get asked this a lot and People always say, are Republicans in Congress freaking out about Donald Trump? And my answer is always no. You know, if anything, they have been exceedingly deferential to him. And they do not treat his comments with the same amount of uh, hysteria as we see in sort of Twitter hysteria, or the amazing or the blowback or people saying this is a distraction or. And I asked we asked John McCain about this. Is all this stuff a distraction from your agenda? And this is what he said. Look, he's he's the elected president of the United States. He can do or say whatever he wants to do. I'm not in the business. He can say whatever he wants to say. I'm not in the business of critiquing his uh, remarks. I would spend all my time doing that. What I want is to see what he's going to do, okay, especially on national defense. He surrounded himself with a strong team. He said he wants to spend more money on defense. I'm in favor of all that. So my job is, to, as chairman of the Armed Services Committee, is to focus on those issues. And if he wants to say that five million people voted, illegals voted, that, that, that doesn't affect what I'm trying to do in my job. And, and that's, the, uh, that's the claim that, that, that there is absolutely no evidence for that millions of people voted illegally. And that's the only reason why he lost the popular vote. Uh, we dug into that last episode, if, if you want to catch up on that. And also, this is what you have to remember, particularly when you're talking about House Republicans. These guys live in ecosystems. And in all, almost all of their ecosystems, Donald Trump didn't just win this election. He won by 20, 30, 40 points in their district. Mm -hmm. So do you want to go home and say, I'm standing up to Donald Trump mm -hmm. if he carried your district and you with 85 percent of the votes? Exactly. Yeah. I'm standing on principle about the deficit, said no one. I also would say like privately when you talk to Republicans, they'll say during the campaign, a lot of these guys criticized him all the time and publicly and on the record. Yeah. And it didn't matter. And their criticism, nobody cared what their criticism was. So their point is like, if we criticize them as a candidate and it didn't work and nobody cared, who's going to criticize the president? Yeah. I mean, I had one Republican just like joking with me yesterday about the tweets in like a, haha, that's really a problem for you now, isn't it? Yeah. Like yeah. not his problem. 
me the reporter's problem. They're very shruggy face emoticon about it, right? They're just kind of like, But But while they're doing that... I feel like the tweets and kind of the aggressive style is is like the central thing among many other statements and policies of Trump's that that's a really like like energizing this this activist base against him. And that's why you had a pretty decent size of people out in the street yelling and protesting uh, yesterday while this was all happening inside the hotel. Yeah. And this whole wall story is one of many stories that has taken like 19 twists and turns before we sat down to tape this weekly roundup. So if you want to check out your NPR One app, we covered all the angles as they <laughs> happened. Uh, it's it's over in NPR One uh, and NPR.org. So we're going to take our first break right there. More on Trump's executive actions. What is going on with them? What do they mean when we come back? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking, what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash NPR. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Support also comes from Full Frontal with Samantha B on TBS. New season, new night, same bad attitude. Don't miss all new episodes of the show Rolling Stone calls A New Era in Late Night. Full Frontal with Samantha B. Now on its new night, Wednesdays at 10.30, 9.30 Central on TBS. All right, we're back. Let's talk about the latest of Trump's executive actions. Today, he signed one imposing a 120-day moratorium on any new refugees entering the United States, and that blocks Syrian refugees indefinitely. A lot of these orders have been coming out in a way where Trump says he's doing something, then the details don't come until later, or they promise they're going to do something and it doesn't come. So there's a lot of confusion, first of all. I just think it all sounds so unclear, right? When we talk about the refugee resettlement issue, I was looking up some of this, and it seems that... The U.S. did somewhat suspend refugee resettlement for a couple of months after the September 11th attacks. People wanted to look at security measures. But largely, we've had a Refugee Resettlement Act that has allowed in over 2 million people since the 1980s. Can we also say, because I think that particularly with the Syrian refugee question, that so much of the conversation around this, and particularly from Donald Trump, has been deeply misleading, and that... The idea that these Syrian refugees are not being vetted is just fundamentally not true. We already have and extreme vetting. The, ve- the I mean, refugees that are sent to the U.S. Have- are referred to us by the U.N. Commission on Refugees. Mm-hmm. Every single refugee that comes into this country is already subject to a vetting process by national security. And most of the refugees coming into here from Syria are women and children. So I think we need to be clear who we're talking about here as well and that there is a very human face on this. And and I think the only other point to add to that is that, well, the the rush of refugees has at times overwhelmed a lot of European countries in in just in terms of how they're accepting and processing these people. It's a relatively small number of people coming to the United States. It's a fraction of the people that have flooded into Europe. And I think one thing that was kind of troubling to hear a lot over the course of the public conversation about this is the way that when you interview people or when people talk about it, the conflation between refugee and terrorist that happened a lot. So that's one of just several 
executive orders or not executive orders or something that was signed on a piece of paper that's happened this week. It, Presidential uh, memoranda yeah. or executive order. Uh, Donald Trump has been signing a lot of things and they've been a lot of things intended to kind of make a big display of I'm accomplishing this. I'm starting the process of that. We are doing what we came here to do. Yeah. Is there a big trend or a theme of, of all the actions this week? OK, so I've been analyzing these things and doing math and looking at history so here are some... Better you than me on the math front. <laughs> here are some takeaways. One, President Trump, with, with his signing of these executive directives today, is ahead of all of his recent predecessors in terms of the number that he signed in his first week. And as you say, it's all about saying, I'm here, I'm president, there's a new president in town, and I'm... I'm doing big, bold things. Uh, I talked to a professor who has been looking at executive orders for most of his career, and he said that the language in the Trump executive orders and and presidential memoranda is bolder, is like very close to the language used in the campaign and is sort of less legalistic in some sections than in past presidents. And could that be a problem down the line when these are challenged in court or when uh, agencies are just trying to figure out what exactly they mean? They inevitably will be challenged in court. And um, our our colleague, Carrie Johnson, reached out today to the Justice Department to see if they had been reviewing the legal language as the Justice Department would tend to do with these kinds of things. And she got a no comment, hmm. which is one of those no comments that is sort of like a sign that's like, I'm not saying... Is that a no comment? comment. Exactly. Also, like, Tam, what happens in the case of certain cities that have already been very bold? I'm thinking of, for example, the plans to rescind any, is it federal funding from sanctuary cities? You've had a series of mayors who have been really outspoken saying, no, my city's going to be safe for immigrants to come to, whether or not they're in the country legally. What happens if folks just don't abide? Well, so here <laughs> is an example of how the executive actions are symbolic in some ways. What the order actually says is the Justice Department and the Department of Homeland Security will explore ways mm. to take this funding. Well, what if they explore it and discover it's not legal? Like this executive order doesn't actually make it happen. It begins the process of maybe possibly making it happen. And if it were to happen, if they were to try to take those funds, experts and many uh, attorneys general uh are making it clear that there will be legal challenges on that one especially. I see. So so a wide range of topics uh, being put into action. Uh, Tam, you are reporting something today uh, on something that Trump has not signed any paperwork about. That's right. So Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama, in their very first executive directives, like in the first two days, all signed orders or memoranda related to ethics, uh, bans on lobbying, bans on conflicts of interest. Um, and notably, since Donald Trump campaigned on draining the swamp, he hasn't signed one yet. Uh, so he he has signed more executive directives than any of his predecessors. But the thing he hasn't gotten to is this thing that people were chanting at his, some of his final rallies, drain the swamp, drain the swamp. Tim, what about, didn't the, in the transition, didn't they talk about they wanted to sign an executive order that was like a five-year ban on executive branch employees becoming lobbyists? What happened to that? Well, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, but here is something really fun that I discovered while I was digging through all of these old executive orders. 
That is exactly the executive order that Bill Clinton signed, a five-year ban on lobbying Mm. and a lifetime ban on lobbying on behalf of a foreign country. It's the exact same thing. Um, A spokeswoman for Donald Trump uh, says that she has nothing to advise on that at this point. All right. So the reality of the world is that we are talking a lot about the Republican Party because they are now in charge of the White House, the House, the Senate, most state houses. They are setting the agenda right now. But there is another party out there in America, (laughs) the Democrats. Um, Asma, you uh, you were out in Ohio and you did a really interesting story talking to, to Democrats on the ground in Ohio about to quote one of Donald Trump's favorite phrases, what the hell was going on <laughs> with the the way that Trump and the Republicans just steamrolled that state? That is true. I spent some time both in the Mahoning Valley, which is the sort of northeast corner of Ohio, and some time in Cleveland. And I wanted to hear both from folks who are sort of plugged into the working class white population as well as African-Americans, because I think a lot of what sort of the conversations we're hearing right now about the Democrats and sort of whither the Democrats, where do they go now, is sort of how do they balance both this economic as well as identity politics conversation and what's the role for these two things. So I met up with this guy. uh, His name is David Beatrice. He's Mm -hmm. the chairman of the Mahoning County Democratic Party. And he told me that during the primary, he realized something was horribly wrong. He had 18 of his own precinct committee people defect cross party lines to vote in the Republican Party. So these are people who have positions with the Democratic Party. Elected positions. And they're saying, no, we're going with Trump. And they decided to go with the Republican. He says, presumably, they went with Trump, many of them. But, you know, they crossed party lines during the Republican primary. And he was angry. I just want to play you a clip of tape. I mean, I sort of asked him, well, why did this happen? So why did they vote for Donald Trump? Because Donald Trump, I don't get it, but amazingly, a man that some gold-plated toilets was talking more to working people than the party's standard bearer. And so, you know, okay, fact check a little. We did check this out. Um, he has a silver toilet. He does not have a gold toilet. But there are, like, gold-plated, you know, There's a lot of gold in fixtures. his massive multi-story apartment. But, but, but you get the, the point, right? Tower. Like, David was Beatrice was so frustrated. And he was ultimately also frustrated because he feels like Democrats still aren't getting it on a national level. And so I asked him kind of, you know, what do you mean by that? And he pointed out the example of how he keeps hearing so many national Democrats argue with Donald Trump over the number of jobs, say the number of jobs that he got in this carrier deal. I don't care if it was 10. It was someone's job. He was fighting for someone's job. That's what we used to do. Right? And now we're, we're, we're at odds with the president because he may have misrepresented the number. Do you think the voters care? They don't care that he misrepresented the number. What they care about was is he's down here fighting for the jobs. That's what we used to do. And this guy was pretty blunt with the Clinton campaign about his concerns, right? He was. He told me that he had written a memo to the Clinton campaign in the spring, voicing his concerns that he had already started to see some of these trends in his county. And he was worried that if they did not fix their message and try to actively court working class voters, they would not only lose Ohio, but they would potentially lose Pennsylvania and Michigan, too. (laughs) And that is what happened. You know, Senate Democrats also have been on a retreat this week. We were not there to cover it because they don't let the 
the press come. Uh, but they are talking about all these issues. When we, they, I think the Democratic Party, at least in the establishment, as we'll say, the ones that we cover or I cover here, that they are reeling from this election and they don't know the answers to this question. And part of the one of the topics at this retreat was how do they get back those voters that they lost? And it's exactly those voters that he was talking about in that I tape. Think there's a concern, too, though, like, Sue, about how do you do that while also sort of actively talking to your base. And a lot of your base are black and brown voters. And there was another guy I talked to. His name is Chinamara Monuku. He was an organizer for the state Democratic Party. He worked to get Clinton elected. He's a young African-American guy. And he's also concerned about, you know, economic issues, but he's worried that the party's going to overcompensate and sort of focus on those issues at sort of the expense of black and brown voters. I want to make sure that we do not abandon minority demographics to go and pander back to, to white Americans. I don't think there's anything wrong with identity politics. As a party, you should be robust enough to have multiple conversations with multiple groups of people at the same time. I mean, I don't know that I have any parting words because, as you heard, yeah. it's sort of like the Democrats themselves are trying to figure this out. They are going to be choosing a new DNC chair soon. But even that's a contested fight. I don't think, you know, we have sort of two key leaders. It seems like either one could potentially be the chair. That's Tom Perez, former secretary of labor under President Obama, as well as Keith Ellison, uh, a very progressive uh, congressman from Minnesota. And Among there many are others. others. There are lots of them. That's true. And they're campaigning actively. It's like an actual campaign. Having forums, yeah. And that election is going to be next month, so we're going to talk about it a few more times between now and then. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, and we will be back with a little bit more news from this week and Can't Let It Go. Support for this podcast comes from Simply Safe, an award winning home security company. Their system uses an arsenal of wireless sensors and has 24 7 professional monitoring. Plus, you pay by month and never get tricked into a long term contract. Simply Safe has no installation costs and no hidden fees, so you can protect your home and family the smart way. Right now, listeners of this podcast can get $200 off the Simply Safe Defender package only if you go to simplysafenpr.com. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. If you want to hear an in-depth conversation about the Trump Foundation, listen to Fresh Air's recent episode featuring Washington Post reporter David Farenthold. We've talked a lot about his work on the show before, of course. He used Twitter to launch a nationwide scavenger hunt to find Trump Foundation assets and donations. Also on Fresh Air, don't miss Terry Gross's recent interview with Bruce Springsteen, someone you probably know who he is already without us explaining him to you. That is home in New Jersey. They talk about Springsteen's childhood, his combative relationship with his father, and the origin of his stage persona. Find Fresh Air on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. Okay, back to the show. All right, we are back. And one more thing to note about uh, this week is that the annual March for Life was happening today. That's a big anti-abortion march that happens here in D.C. every year right around the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision. This year, thousands and thousands of people flooded to Washington like they do every year. But one thing was different, and it was a pretty big deal. 
And that is that Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, spoke in person at the rally. He is the highest ranking person to ever do that. Because a vice president speaking at a big rally doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But there's been tricky politics with that, even when Republicans were in office. Right. And and so Ronald Reagan phoned into mm-hmm. the rally and then... Uh, Subsequent Republican presidents video conferenced in from like two blocks away. But Mike Pence is the first vice president or president uh, to appear in person. Uh, He said that Donald Trump asked him to be there. And, And it's significant, not just because he's the first, but also because there has been sort of this unease among some people about whether Donald Trump really was as opposed to abortion as he claimed to be because in a earlier iteration of Donald Trump, he had been pro-choice. But he uh, he did things like release that list of possible Supreme Court justices to try and and, and calm the concerns of people who, who really are passionate about this issue. And I think Mike Pence showing up in person sends them the big signal, we are on your side. Uh, let's listen to what Pence had to say. And that's why next week, President Donald Trump will announce a Supreme Court nominee who will uphold the God-given liberties enshrined in our Constitution in the tradition of the late and great Justice Antonin Scalia. You know, life is winning in America. And today is a celebration of that progress, the progress that we've made in this cause. And that brings us to a topic that will be dominating the news this time next week. Donald Trump is expected to announce a Supreme Court pick. He says it's going to happen next week. The Good News Podcast listeners is that there is someone named Nina Totenberg in your future. We will do an episode the day that Trump's pick is announced. Nina, of course, covers the Supreme Court for NPR. And with all that, again, we still did not get to all the things that happened this week, but we did our best. It is time for Can't Let It Go. This is how we end the show each week. We share something we just can't stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Tam. Turtles. 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 Go on. And how they get on fence posts. So uh, yesterday, as we mentioned, I was in Philadelphia. I was uh, in the pool following Mike Pence around. So I I got to see Mike Pence give his speech. And he uh, said something that he has said before. I heard him say it in a speech two weeks ago. Um, I just want to play the tape. Back in Indiana, we have a saying that when you see a box turtle on a fence post, one thing you know for sure. He had help getting there. I guess that's true. (laughs) I thought it sounded familiar. It turns out that uh, they don't just talk about turtles on fence posts in Indiana. They talk about them in Arkansas, too. You know, if you find a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by accident. And I just look at the landscape around here and I see just lots of big old turtles. Now, that was former First Lady Hillary Clinton during her Arkansas accent phase. Uh, (laughs) But but get this, there's more. More turtles. I, well, I, so I went back and I was like, when else did she say it? Well, she says it all the time, including in her first press conference on Hill Force One on her airplane back on Labor Day. If you find a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by accident. So this is this great thing. You can use it for anything. Can in that I case, say, though, I grew up in the Midwest. I do not recall ever seeing turtles on fence posts. I'm just so amazed <laughs> that this is such a widespread belief from Indiana to Arkansas. Just also, for the record. Jeb Bush... 
I forget if we ever talked about this, but Jeb Bush would like walk around when when he was running for president with little turtles, like turtle figures in his pocket, and hand them out this. to kids because because he liked the idea that slow and steady wins the race. Poor Jeb. Aww. But slow and steady did not win the race for Jeb. <laughs> Asma, you are next, despite the fact that you've never seen a turtle on a fence post in Indiana. That is true. So. I am, as you all know, really adore fashion. Sue and I like often have conversations just about, you know, whatever. The Beyonce wearing gray sweaters today. (laughs) We are wearing gray sweaters today. Anyhow, it's like this thing that I think, oh, Scott, you're wearing a gray gray sweater sweater too. too. I am. Um, anyhow, Tam on Friday. Oh, yeah. Tam on Fridays, we wear gray. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. Um, I have like been very intrigued by Donald Trump's fashion or lack of fashion, should I say, in yeah. his attire. So GQ um, has essentially trolled Donald Trump with this presidential makeover that they put out. But I thought some of it was like on point fashion advice. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to share. A little bit of this. One tip they have is that his suits are so baggy. I mean, they are. Yeah. They look kind of like 90s grunge style. Is that fair to say? A little bit? They look, look like off the rack. Suits, right? So but like, style. it's an off the rack suit. But it's suit. like you designer don't get off the rack. That's the thing. They are clearly probably not cheap. I mean, he's, he's a man who has yeah. the money to tailor a suit. The other tip they had was that he wears very broad ties. They're very giant <laughs> ties. So A, that's just not in really style. He also like, ties right them and they hang like way far below True. where they Hang. So Scott, you you wouldn't. Where should the tie like normally end? Okay, with the caveat that I am not the most fashionable person <laughs> in the world, I was always led to believe that you want the tip of your tie kind of touching or in the general area of your belt buckle. Yeah, interesting. And it should nowadays. I feel like the thin tie is very in. skinny it's been ties, in, right? Yeah. Skinny ties for a while. And the the last thing I want to mention is the wrinkled pants. Like that is like I'm sure there must be people who can like always iron his clothes. That should be like an easy <laughs> fix. It is hard sometimes to buy. <laughs> pants that fit for a dude. It has been a lifelong struggle to have. This is what tailoring is for, tailoring. though. So anyhow, all I'm saying is Donald Trump, like you could totally fix your look. It's very easy to do. It's also amazing because Melania is so fashionable. She is. And so like clearly. Her attire is amazing. And it's always impeccably tailored and yes. it always looks so smart. And it's like they're just a very different couple that way. As a <laughs> wife who can't get my husband to buy pants anywhere other than Costco, despite my greatest efforts, <laughs> I'm just going to stand up for Melania here and say she's probably trying. So <laughs> my turn. Um so we were making fun of the whole special relationship thing earlier and how like everybody uses that phrase. But I think the fact is that there have been a lot of prime ministers and presidents who really are in sync with each other and kind of represent a big political era. You have Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair in the 90s, um, the important Billy Bob Thornton, Hugh Grant prime minister president relationship. And uh, I, I, I found this one anecdote and I fact checked it because it seemed like something that like wouldn't be true, but is true. But one time uh, during World War II, Winston Churchill like basically moved into the White House for several weeks. And at one point, uh, FDR came into the room and Churchill was naked. What? And, yeah, because he had just gotten out of the bath. And he said, there are no secrets between the prime minister and the president. And that is a true story. You fact checked this. Uh, oh. According to several books that I wow. But. 
all this president, prime minister uh, press conferences got me thinking about this one random thing I remember from when George Bush was president. I think I saw it on TV at the time and it stuck in my head. Which George Bush? Uh, George W. Bush. Um, it was just like this week. It was one of his first visits with a foreign leader. Tony Blair came. They were uh, up at Camp David in retreat casuals. Bush had this like big, ridiculous bomber jacket on. And it was just like a really awkward press conference where the reporters were like trying to get tidbits. And I just listened back to it, and it was just kind of funny. Um, a question for both of you. Um, there's been a lot said about how different you are as people. Uh, have you already, in, in your talks, found something maybe that you, some personal interest that you have in common, maybe in religion or sport or music? Well, we both use Col Colgate toothpaste. They're going to wonder how you know, you know that, George. <laughs> What a weird thing to know. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then like it goes on. Creeping into your room. Yeah, and then like Do they somebody share a bathroom at the White House. <laughs> like, like when you have guest stay and they like leave a toiletry kit in the bathroom. Oh, oh, I forgot my toothpaste. Could I borrow yours? Oh, great! I also use Colgate. Yeah. Like like knocking on the door when they're getting ready for bed. All right, uh, Sue, what do you got? So my can't let it go is about Twitter, as all things in life seem to be about Twitter now. Yep. In that. Obviously, the president is going to continue to use Twitter as a medium for both messaging and expressing his opinions. And it seems like now everyone's getting in on it more, that Twitter is the playground by which both the president is communicating and people are communicating to the president. And I've noticed this a lot uh, particularly from members of Congress, that they are responding to the president through their Twitter accounts, because that seems to be the place where you reach him. And <laughs> maybe the best example of that this week was Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, and a frequent Trump critic, we should note, uh, tweeted out in response to the reports about Trump getting on board with this tax on Mexico. Some people consider it a tariff. Uh, other free traders don't like it. And Lindsey Graham is one of those. And he tweeted that he opposed this idea, and he said, simply put, any policy proposal which drives up costs of Corona, tequila, or margaritas is a big-time bad idea. Mucho sad. Mucho sad. And mucho sad <laughs> is a very good way to end this podcast today. That's true. Because. Because it is Asma's very last podcast. It is indeed. Thank you, guys. It's been a good run. And what are you doing next? So I'll be covering business and technology. I'll be working for the NPR station in Boston, WBUR, and I'll get to live in the same city as my husband. So that'll be nice. That'll be a change of pace. Yeah, yeah that's nice and all, but we're going to miss, miss you. I'll miss you guys. I'll miss you guys. You know, but I will say, like, I so look forward to, like, simple things. I know this sounds so funny, but I feel like I can count on my hand the amount of times I have probably cooked dinner in the last year. Mm-hmm. And that is really depressing. So, <laughs> I look forward to eating home-cooked meals and, you know, going to the gym occasionally. And, you know, Massachusetts is going to have a great Senate race in 2018. So <laughs> Scott and I may be up there to spend some time with you. I feel like Good. lots of very crazy things happened over the last couple of years. But one of my favorite things of the last year and a half or so was sitting next to you and just getting to know you and learning from you. You and know, it feels like I've known you guys for like a long time. Yeah. And I really have it. I was like, I actually think Scott, like, I really didn't know Scott at all yeah. until he, like, moved in next door. And then I was like, hey. All those low <laughs> cubicle walls we have fostering relationships. <laughs> Campaign years are like dog years. You know, like, it's not that much time, but you're like, God, that felt like I it know. was forever. I will miss you guys, though, in all honesty. It's been, like, a lot, a lot of fun. 
I mean, and it not even fun. Fun is like the not appropriate adjective to use because it actually at times was not fun, as people have heard probably in previous podcasts at times. Yeah. But it was just so remarkably rewarding in hindsight. And I think I will even feel more so that way when I have the space of time to look back on this you know, remarkable journey and sort of say like, hey, I was there and I got a chance to, you know, not only hear from voters all across the country, but really, I think, have an eyewitness to history um, mm-hmm. because my time was spent, you know, with a lot of you all, with voters, with people listening. So thank you all for listening. You know, I'll be listening to you all, too. Unless we bar the door and don't let you leave the studio <laughs> after this, which which could happen. So on that really sad note, We're going to wrap, but not before mentioning that our D.C. live show on February 10th is almost sold out. So if you're in the D.C. area, if you want to come down to the D.C. area to watch us, get tickets while you still can at nprpresents.org. Thanks for writing to us with your questions and comments. Many of you have asked whether we're going to go back to daily episodes like we did over the final weeks of the campaign. Short answer, no. We're just too busy. (laughs) But we do hop in the studio when big major stuff happens that's unexpected. We've got a couple shows a week. And you can follow all the work we're doing on NPR.org and on your local public radio station. Finally, thanks for supporting your local station as well. All right, we'll be back next week on Monday or Tuesday, depending on the news. I'm Scott Tetro. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid. I soon to be a former political reporter. Aww. And I'm Susan Davis, and I'm mucho sad. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast.